welcome to the Hindu on Books podcast. I'm Shudipta Datta, your host for today. And we'll be talking to Professor Audrey Trushke, who teaches history at Rutgers University. For someone who came to study the gloriously complicated history of South Asia by accident, Professor Trushke has written three fascinating books on the subcontinent's past, particularly shining a light on forgotten aspects of the Mughal age. Her first book, Culture of Encounters, Sanskrit at the Mughal Court, published in 2016, documents the fascinating exchange between the Persian-speaking Islamic elite of the Mughal Empire and traditional Sanskrit scholars. Her second book, Aurangzeb, The Man and the Myth, profiled the controversial Mughal king, busting popular misconceptions and stereotypes for which she received both kudos and brickbats. In her latest, The Language of History, she argues that Sanskrit histories of Indo-Muslim rule ought to be acknowledged as crucial to the study of that period. We hope to talk about Sanskrit and its place in Indo-Persian political history, cultural encounters, and the sometimes terrifying ways the past lives on in the present and whether we will ever be able to move beyond the Hindu-Muslim binary. Thank you for talking to us, Professor Trushke. Uh, you begin your new book with your August 2018 experience when Hindutva activists prevented you from delivering an academic lecture. We are seeing a rising wave of intolerance. We read distressing reports almost every day. Is your book a reply of sorts to that experience in Hyderabad? Thanks for the question. I agree that there is rising intolerance in India right now. It's very alarming and very distressing to see. My book, The Language of History, it's not a direct reply to the cancellation over my objections of my lecture in August of 2018. I conceived of the book project several years before that and then had started working on it already. That said, that event, it was a, a formative event, I would say, in my academic career. And I opened the language of history with that moment when I cannot speak in Hyderabad. So I, I do position the book sort of against that. But what made you interested in this period, particularly? That's a great question. And someday, I'm, I'm just going to make up an answer to it because I really don't have a good one. I, I came to study South Asian history and cultures through a series of essentially accidents sort of driven by an intellectual love and curiosity for various aspects of the Indian past. I came to settle more or less on working on the second millennium in South Asia, sort of 12th through 18th centuries, sort of the core of what I do, partially because that's what my training and language skills enable me to do. And partially, I think it's just, it's where my interests lie. Particularly, I'm very interested in how Islamic political power, whether we want to call it Islamic or not, however we want to, want to term that, the sort of set of cultural and social changes that that set off. I'm very interested in that, what it looked like, and how it remade India going forward. Right. You seem to have stumbled onto some very fascinating things that, as I was reading the book, uh, it sort of... Um, really, it's very interesting in the sense that, you know, that you argue that uh, 
the variety of viewpoints held by pre-modern India's traditional modern elite of the Muslim other, most often depicted as not particularly Muslim or not particularly other. So are we transporting some of our you know, present day anxieties to the past? And Absolutely. Let me speak first to the question of whether we're writing our modern day anxieties onto the past. I think we are and we aren't. Well, I think it's fair to point out that how I posed the question at the outset of the book, what were Sanskrit views of the Muslim other, that is a question that only makes sense in the 20th and 21st centuries, given current day religious and political tensions. That's fair to point out. It's, I don't think it's necessarily the most helpful way to pose the question, which is why I go on to sort of deconstruct it throughout the course of the book. Now, I think that it's not writing our anxieties onto pre-modern India to point out that Sanskrit intellectuals in different times and places were really interested by Muslim political individuals and dynasties. And what we now identify as one of the biggest social, cultural, and political shifts of the second millennium, many Sanskrit intellectuals in pre-modernity saw it as pretty important and worthy of investigation as well. And I found what I found were sort of views that are all over the map. I we start with somebody like Jayanika, who's the earliest author that I deal with, who wrote a full text. And he's writing in the 1190s, sort of as the Gorids are setting up shop in Delhi. And for him, there was definitely another. It was not Muslim in any way that we would really identify or define Muslim now, but there was decidedly an other. The Gorids could never be welcomed in India for Jayanika. But then 200 years, less than 200 years later, in the 1380s, we have Ganga Devi writing in India's deep south in Tamil Nadu. And she's writing about the Sultanate of Madurai, which is a sort of, you know, somewhat forgotten piece of history, but an independent Muslim-led kingdom in the 14th century in southern India. And for her, the Sultanate of Madurai, their political enemies, she encourages King Kampan, the Vijayanagara ruler who fights them on the battlefield, but they're also just a normal part of the Indian political landscape. So it's not that she embraces them with open arms, you know, yay, I'm so glad you're here, but she doesn't feel any need to push back either. There's, there's nothing particularly other or threatening about them. They're just another political power by and large for her. And those sort of two early views, I think, outline kind of different ways that, that people sort of choose to see and present this different, different Muslim rulers in, throughout the, the course of the history that I chart in the book, um, with, with more people leaning towards some sort of integration. The subcontinent has a long history of uh, accepting waves of migration, migrations. In the texts you write about, the Sanskrit scholars are recording their opinion about these visitors and their ways, but there doesn't seem to be a pushback. Is it because, is it because we were always used to diverse people coming here? Mm. I, I think there's probably some truth in that. When, when Indo-Muslim rule dawns in the late 12th to the early 13th century, it's, it's coming to being in a world where there's not one way of being a king. 
right? There, there's no single institution or lineage of Indian kingship at, at that point in time, really ever, I would argue. There were all kinds of Indian kings of different cultural backgrounds, who spoke different languages, who belonged to different religious traditions and ruled and positioned themselves in all sorts of different ways. So when Muslims come in and sort of want, want in on a piece of that action, there are things that are a little different about them, right? They speak yet other languages and they're members of yet another religious tradition, but perhaps in a world where diversity and heterogeneity was always the norm. Maybe maybe that was less shocking to people. That explains the depiction in the texts, which brings me to the next question. It's fascinating to learn of this intersection between an elite learned tradition, which is Sanskrit thought, and the disruptors, uh, the Muslim rule. And yet, only a thin crust of the intellectual elite was Sanskrit literate. So what view do the Sanskrit texts reflect? Mm, that is a great question. And I'm, I'm glad you're giving me the opportunity to clarify this. The, the texts that I deal with in the book were written by a learned elite. They were concerned with another sort of elite, people who wielded incredible political power. It is in intellectual history, intellectual histories in general, and specifically my, this intellectual history that I've just written, it is elite in its focus. The book makes no claims to represent in everyday views of everyday people. This is not a people's history. It's not history from below or anything of that sort. And that is important to explaining certain aspects of what I found. To give just one example, to the extent to the extent that there was a persistent concern with something problematic or troublesome that that bothered Sanskrit intellectuals that sort of comes up again and again throughout their works on the part of Indo-Muslim elites. To the extent that there was something like that, it was Persian, the language. They did not like that Indo-Muslim rulers spoke Persian. That comes up over and over. That's a very elite concern. Right, that's that's something that Sanskrit intellectuals care about far more, most likely, than, than your common everyday people. I, I am I try to be forthcoming in the book about the fact that this is an elite tradition. I do try to push back on this contours and definition of that elite tradition. Specifically, Sanskrit thought is often presented as a Brahmanical dominated thing in a Brahman in a sort of Brahmanical story period. Many Brahmins feature on the on the pages of the language of history, but Brahmins were they were only part of the story. And I do feature a number of Jain authored works as well. Yes, as and Buddhist as well. I, absolutely, especially in in the earlier parts, uh, a little bit of Buddhist stuff. Yeah, and so what what I want to push back there is uh, something. It started in the past and it persists in the present, which is the idea that we that we want to allow Brahmins to define Sanskrit intellectual discourse, right? So Brahmins tried to do that in the past, and many modern day Sanskrit scholars, whether knowingly or not, continue to reflect a Brahmanical bias, and I think that that's inappropriate. So this, but you know, there's another thing that I noticed that historical Sanskrit na narratives not really taken seriously, or are they? And are there anything about non-histories or bad histories? Or wh Why is it important to you know, take this into account, this view? So I, uh, so I argue in the book that we should treat Sanskrit literary histories as histories, 
not as hagiography or some other form of sort of half history or pseudo history. And I'm trying, I'm trying to, to do a few things. I want to push back on the inappropriate application of modern Western ideas onto a pre-modern non-Western past. Right. That's an important uh, thing to argue. I, I, I suppose it makes sense to Absolutely. And I think I think I say this in the book that if you go looking for modern Western history anywhere except the modern West, all you're going to find is an absence. Um, And pre-modern India has long been thought to have no history, either in historical change or in written documents. That's that's an old fashioned view, but it's one that I think still does shape aspects of scholarly thinking. So I'm trying to push back on that. And I also want to argue that we should use these Sanskrit texts for insights into the past. I think that they offer usable pieces of history. My focus in the book remains more on intellectual history, what people thought. I think that there's, a, there's bits of hard history and political history there as well. That's the other thing that I noticed, I mean, I've found in the book, that it's not really about religion, but the, the, their concern is about power. I didn't see. I mean, there are references to, you know, the the, the religion that Muslims that they're, they're different. They're different. They practice it differently. More so in the Buddhist uh, text that, that that became apparent. But for the other, the Sanskrit text, they're they're mostly talking about power. Is is that a fair uh, assessment? I think as a generalization, yes. That is very fair. You're correct to point out that in some of the earlier sources, especially the Buddhist sources, they are much more concerned with perceived religious difference. The the question of religion does come up in various texts. Somebody like Srivara writing in Kashmir talks about this. Some of the Maratha sources talk about this. The very the last set of texts that I talk about by b- b- there's a twin set of works uh, written in the early 18th century on Mughal politics by Lakshmi Pati. He talks about religion, but generally about religious similarity, not perceived difference. So it does sort of filter through at various points, but religion is not the unifying theme. Right? You 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 simply cannot read these Sanskrit texts and possibly walk away with that conclusion. If there is a unifying theme and concern, it's power, political power. Right, right. So did it surprise you that this, 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 what you found in the Sanskrit text, did it surprise you at all? Or is it that the subcontinent was like that? It was more about power than about anything else. Overall, an emphasis on political identity rather than religious identity, that was an unsurprising find. That's very consistent with what, pre-modern, what, what historians of pre-modern and early modern India, what we've been saying for decades and have sort of shown using various sorts of sources. That was very consistent. Of course, I was surprised at certain specific things that I found here and there. You know, when, I, when I first collected this body of text, most of them I had not read in much detail. And so reading through, obviously, certain things I did not expect to find. Okay. Like, if you could share share a few examples, one or two. That's a good question. Let me a couple of examples. Let me give a few. So, for Jayanika, who I mentioned, our earliest guy, late twelfth century, I did not expect the harsh othering. I figured he wouldn't be a huge fan of the Gorids. After all, he worked for the Chohans, the people that the Gorids overthrew. But 
I didn't expect this sort of absolute othering, which I did find in his work. So, so that, that, that was, that was a, a bit sort of surprising to my eyes initially. Um, what else? I, another thing that came up, so going, going to the sort of mid to late 17th century and looking at Maratha texts, uh, they, they actually coined some, uh, uh, some new words for Muslims that had not been used before in Sanskrit. That's, that surprised me. That, that, that other than lech- that's other than lecture and uh, all that that you mentioned. Or- exactly. So Sanskrit had, you know, easily a dozen words that by the 17th century you could use for Muslims and Malicha and Yavana, Tudushka. Those were the three most common. So we had an established vocabulary. But, but then, you know, these, the, the Maratha guys, they seem to feel a need to sort of explore other forms of vocabulary. That was surprising. Um, I think the, la- the last bit I'll mention is turning to Lakshmi Pati, the last guy in the 18th century. He, he plays with Persian in his text. And I knew that going in, but I, I didn't appreciate sort of how sophisticated some of those plays would be. He, and as a result of, of seeing that, um, that allowed me to make a number of points in the book. But one, one question it allowed me to raise is, why did he write in Sanskrit? and not in Persian. I'm quite confident he could have written his text in Persian. And so it does represent a real language choice and an election of writing in Sanskrit in the 18th century. So should historians call out the factual paucity of Hindutva narratives that insert Hindu-Muslim conflict into India's past, as you mentioned in your book? Yes, we should. I and many historians do this in public forums, in academic forums, uh, you know, in, in all sorts of ways. I think historians, we each have our own style. Right? Some people are on social media, some aren't. Some of us give public lectures all the times. Others really prefer to, to stay in the ivory tower. So I think there are different venues. There are different methods. But if the, the Hindutva challenge to not only understanding the details of the Indian past, but actually just the very basic practice of history, right? That we actually want to know and understand what happened in the Indian past, as opposed to make it up to serve modern day political interests, which is what Hindutva ideology advocates doing. This this assault on, on history itself as a discipline, this is one of the big challenges of our times. And if you're a historian who works on South Asia and you're not engaged with that in some way, I don't know what you're doing. Like, I, I just, I really don't know what you, what you think the academic job is. But to me, this is an absolutely critical thing. I do want to note that speaking directly against Hindutva mythology about the past and Hindutva as a sort of hateful political ideology has severe consequences for a whole lot of us. And that's, that's deeply unfortunate and it's deeply problematic. And I think that the, the pushback against people who speak out on behalf of human rights and equality and history and just against fascism, right? All of that really, that, that pushback against that really needs to stop. Right. But uh, it's quite terrifying, isn't it? The way the past is living on in the present like this. A constructed past, so to speak. That mm, I agree, 
And I think it's important that it is a constructed past. This is not so, if the past was living on, if memory of the real Indian past was living on in the present, maybe it would raise other issues. I don't know, but it would not raise the, the, our current set of issues. You know, the, the religious tensions and specifically sort of Hindutva fueled hatred of India's religious minorities. This is a modern issue with, with roots in the modern world, not the pre-modern world. And I think Hindutva ideologues want to deny that reality for a whole lot of reasons. But one is that they don't want to face up to their culpability, that this is their hate, that they are the ones coming up with and advocating this. It's not rooted in real grievances in the past. It's rooted in their bigotry in the present. Right. And so uh, what can historians do to sort of, you know, do we need more books on more books on our past, which is, you know, this diverse and multifaceted and, you know, with lots of influences? Is that one way of taking them on the challenge? I really wish that more academic books could persuade people and stand up to the hateful politics of the present. But I think it's probably a little naive to think that. I, th- I also think historians, we have, we have a pretty clear set of tools, historical method and analysis of the past. We have our ethics that we do not bow to political pressure. We don't change our interpretation of the past because it upsets somebody in the present because somebody wants us to misrepresent the past. We're, we're, we're honestly trying to figure out what happened and then think about what it might mean for us today. And we're going to continue doing that, regardless of the, of the sort of political consequences and implications of that. So all of this to say, I don't know that historians have a particularly effective set of tools for pushing back against Hindutva, but it's the only set we've got. And the Hindutva ideologues sure seem to think that we're a pretty serious threat. Mm. Yeah, that, that's it, it. Comes out in various ways, and it's coming out, and it's not the. It's just the beginning. It seems of rather challenging time for all of us. Let's see. You know, historians don't predict the future. I have no idea what's going to happen, but you know, I I intend to have a long career and keep pursuing aspects of the Indian past. Yeah, but the past is telling you a different story, right? Absolutely, and and and, it, and it's a fascinating story. And you know, there there are so many terrible things about Hindutva and its effects in the present. And this just one of those things, probably not the most important, but one very close to my heart, is that Hindutva ideologues want to deny modern day Indians access to their past. They don't want people to know these stories. India has a gloriously complicated history as a land, as a region. And I think that if people want to know about it, they should have access to that. Right, right. And that's the tradition it was. And Dara Shiku, for instance, translated the Upanishads, the Ramayana and Mahabharata were translated into Persian during the reign of Akbar. Akbar Nama was translated into Sanskrit. So we have this uh, glorious tradition of, you know, understanding uh, each other's literary uh, texts or, or the rich uh, literature that we have. So uh, it'll be a pity, isn't it, if we block that off? Absolutely. I think th- there's a lot to look back on and take pride in. There's there's also stuff that we look back on and we don't feel so good about today. And in the language of history, I do talk about quite a lot of violence 
It's political violence. It's not religiously motivated violence, but it still resulted in a whole lot of dead bodies on battlefields. A whole lot of dead bodies and a whole lot of uh, 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 targeting religion, religious places, so to speak. That's there in the book. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, pre-modern temple destructions are one of the most over-discussed aspects of the past and the present, but, but they were a real thing. They happened, just not on the scale that people imagine today and not for the reasons many people imagine either. But we historians don't shy away from the violence of the past because we have no need to. Right? Historians, I, I, at least me as a historian, I don't seek to justify the past. I feel no need to justify anything about the Indian past. I'm not trying to tell you it was some paradise that we all want to go back to. That's absurd. I'm just trying to present and understand it. Right. Understand it and learn something from it, hopefully? I certainly hope so. And I think you know what lessons we want to take from the past, that's going to depend on your person. For me, I think that one thing that is helpful for us modern people to see and that I try to bring out in the language of history is a different a different set of identities and a different way of defining who your who you are in your community, what that is as opposed to an other. And hopefully that can sort of expand our imaginations today. Maybe someday we can try to break out of the the sort of Hindu-Muslim binary that seems to have gripped and, and, and shackled so many imaginations. And I'm not the only scholar advocating this, right? My, my book is sort of one of many trying to expand our imaginations in this regard. Are you working on something else now? You continue to be interested in this period? I am. I have, I have started a new book project. This project is a little different. I am writing an overview, History of India, a single volume, and it will start with the Indus Valley civilization, and it will end in the 2020s. So it, it, it's, sort of, it's sort of the whole shebang. Um, I, the, the book will take several years to write, so don't, you know, don't, 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 don't rush out and reserve your copy or anything right now. Um, but, you know, let, let, let's see. I, I think that there's a need for this right now. You know, th- there are a number of overview histories of India, but not one that covers sort of all of the history um, and that is particularly recent. So this is my attempt at that. This is your big book project after three books on a particular period. Correct. And this book, yeah, I mean, we're, I'm going to cover over 4,000 years of history. It's going to be a fairly long book, which means it will take quite a while for me to write. All the very best and thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Really appreciate it.